This article, Desperate Attempts to Discover the Elusive Process of Evolution, from the Creation Journal, is a free MP3 audio resource produced by Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB is online at puritandownloads.com. This article is copyrighted by Creation Ministries International, CMI, and is read by permission. The author of this article is Walter J. Remine, and the reader of this article is W.J. Mencaro. Visit Creation Ministries International at creation.com for a massive collection of outstanding, free, online creationist resources, videos, articles, etc. At Stillwater's Revival Books, we also highly recommend CMI's professionally produced magazines, The Creation Magazine and The Journal of Creation. CMI speakers also visit churches all over the United States and the world to communicate the importance of the creation issue and the overall authority of Scripture at a lay level, and CMI does not charge a set speaking fee. If you are interested in having a CMI speaker at your church, please visit the Contact Us page on creation.com for details of your local office. We at Stillwater's Revival Books also make thousands of free Christian resources available online at puritandownloads.com. At puritandownloads.com, you will also find our complete online catalog containing classic and contemporary Christian books, digital downloads, MP3s, videos, books, and the Puritan hard drive at great discounts. And now, to SWRB's reading of Desperate Attempts to Discover the Elusive Process of Evolution, by Walter J. Remine. Remembering that God teaches us in the Bible that, quote, the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, unquote. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, King James Version. This is a review of the book The Altenburg 16, an expose of the evolution industry by Suzanne Mazur, published by North Atlantic Books, Berkeley, California, in 2010. It's reviewed by Walter J. Remine. Because this book was written by an evolutionist, creation scholars will especially love it. The Altenburg 16 looks at the rivalry in science today surrounding attempts to discover, quote, the elusive process of evolution, unquote. Its centerpiece is the by-invitation-only symposium held at Altenburg, Austria, in July 2008, attended by 16 evolutionary scientists, called the Altenburg 16. These are quotes from the book. Quote, While the Altenburg 16 have roots in neo-Darwinian theory, they recognize the need to challenge the prevailing modern synthesis because there's too much it doesn't explain. Unquote. Page 7. Quote, the Altenburg 16 recognized that the theory of evolution which most practicing biologists accept and which is taught in classrooms today is inadequate in explaining our existence, Unquote. page 19. Quote, a wave of scientists now questions natural selection's role, though fewer will publicly admit it, Unquote. page 20. Quote, Evolutionary science is as much about the posturing, salesmanship, stonewalling, and bullying that goes on as it is about actual scientific theory. It is a social discourse involving hypotheses of staggering complexity with scientists, recipients of the biggest grants of any intellectuals, assuming the power of politicians while engaging in 
animal house pie-throwing and name-calling, quote, ham-fisted, unquote, quote, loony Marxist hangover, unquote, quote, secular creationist, unquote, quote, philosopher, unquote, that is, a scientist who can't get grants anymore, quote, quack, quote, crackpot. In short, it, continuing quotation from the book, it's a modern-day quest for the Holy Grail, but with few knights. At a time that calls for scientific vision, scientific inquiry has been hijacked by an industry of greed, with evolution books hyped like snake oil at a carnival. Continuing quotation from the book, quote, Perhaps the most egregious display of commercial dishonesty is this year's celebration of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, the so-called theory of evolution by natural selection, i.e. survival of the fittest, a brand foisted on us 150 years ago. Scientists agree that natural selection can occur, but the scientific community also knows that natural selection has little to do with long-term changes in populations. Unquote. Page 5. The book gives numerous statements that creation scholars will cheer. I therefore expected its author, Suzanne Mazur, to offset those by giving the usual obligatory condemnation of creationists or the usual stern but empty warning that creationists will find nothing useful here. I was pleasantly surprised these were absent from her prose. Though Mazur is an evolutionist, she is clearly a serious reporter, committed to the reporter's craft of excluding her own views. The book is careful reportage throughout. She asks pointed questions of many evolutionary scientists and gives lengthy transcripts of their responses, along with biographies and observations about their appearance, manner, habits, and hobbies. It's unlikely a creationist reporter could have gotten these same evolutionists to open up that much. The book openly acknowledges the insufficiency of explaining evolution via natural selection, i.e. mutation and recombination plus various forms of selection, and documents this point with statements from leading evolutionary scientists. Quoting from the book, We are grappling with the increasing feeling that we just don't have the theoretical and analytical tools necessary to make sense of the bewildering diversity and complexity of living organisms, unquote. That's from the invitation to attend the Altenburg Conference and quoted on page 31. Quote, basically, I don't think anybody knows how evolution works. And that's a statement by Jerry Fodor, found on page 34 of the book. On page 21 of the book, a quotation from Stanley Salfe, quote, Oh, sure, natural selection's been demonstrated. The interesting point, however, is that it has rarely, if ever, been demonstrated to have anything to do with evolution, in the sense of long-term changes in populations. Summing up, we can see that the import of the Darwinian theory of evolution is just unexplainable caprice from top to bottom. What evolves is just what happens to happen, unquote. And on page 54, quoting Stuart Kaufman, There are people spouting off as if we know the answer. We don't know the answer. Quoting Antonio Lima de Faria on page 83, Darwinism and the neo-Darwinian synthesis, last dusted off 70 years ago, actually hinder discovery of the mechanism of evolution. Quoting Scott Gilbert on page 221, do I think natural selection should be relegated to a less important role in the discussion of evolution? 
Yes, I do. Suzanne Mazur writes on page 257, Lynn Margulis sees natural selection as, quote, neither the source of heritable novelty nor the entire evolutionary process, unquote. Anne has pronounced neo-Darwinism dead, since there's no adequate evidence in the literature that random mutations result in new species. Lynn Margulis is quoted on page 278. At that meeting, Francisco Alaya agreed with me when I stated that this doctrinaire neo-Darwinism is dead. He was a practitioner of neo-Darwinism, but advances in molecular genetics, evolution, ecology, biochemistry, and other news had led him to agree that neo-Darwinism's now dead, unquote. And quoting Massimo Piatelli Palmarini on page 314 of the book, quote, The point is, however, that an organism can be modified and refined by natural selection, but that is not the way new species and new classes and new phyla originated, unquote. The book identifies key areas where natural selection is not a sufficient explanation, but discusses those only briefly and superficially. Mazur could have done a better job explaining these problems that are driving evolutionary scientists up the wall. I'll greatly expand the discussion here. One area is obviously the origin of life, since natural selection can't operate until after life has begun. Yet modern science has revealed breathtaking complexity of the simplest known self-reproducing life forms. To explain away these difficulties, evolutionists are claiming the existence on Earth of countless life forms unlike any known life forms. They have no evidence of that. Instead, they are trying to keep their worldview from being falsified by floating untestable explanations. In addition, evolutionists are now offering unknown processes of, quote, self-assembly and, quote, self-organization and associated terms like plasticity. Another key area is the origin of higher taxa, especially the origin of phyla and classes. According to evolutionists themselves, the origin of all the animal phyla occurred within or very near a brief geological twinkling of an eye, known as the Cambrian explosion. This is a big problem in itself. But it gets worse. Stephen Jay Gould noted that the fossil sequence shows the most disparate, most different biological designs tend to show up first, followed by the slightly less disparate designs followed by the still less different designs, until lastly, the last slight bits of interspecies biological diversity are filled in at the very end of the process. The general trend in the fossil sequence is the various phyla show up first, later various lanolin classes are filled in, and still later various lanolin orders are filled in, and so forth. Gould called this pattern, Disparity Precedes Diversity. An evolutionist cannot blame this sequence on an incomplete fossil record, as they often try to do. That contradicts the expectations of Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism, which expects slow change that over time will gradually accumulate to large differences. In short, Darwinism expects the most disparate designs to show up last, not first. This is contradicted by the fossil record. To be honest, to most people not emotionally invested in the matter, it falsifies the Darwinism. Something is wrong at the core of Darwinian theory. But it gets still worse. Recent discoveries in genetics are adding another interesting new challenge to the problem. 
Developmental biologists have observed a small set of genes coordinating organismal development of body plans, and these are present across the multicellular kingdom in the various phyla and classes. Evolutionists call this the developmental genetic toolkit. According to evolutionary thinking, this complex toolkit must have originated in some common ancestor to all the phyla. But that common ancestor must have existed prior to first appearance of these phyla, in other words, prior to the Cambrian explosion. The common ancestor, whose identity is still unknown, must have existed in the Precambrian, prior to the origin of multicellular life. In short, the genes that control body plans had to have originated when there were no bodies. The genes that control embryological development had to have originated when there were no embryos. Quoting Stuart Newman on page 52 of the book, At the point when the modern animal body plans first emerged half a billion years ago, just about all the genes that are used in modern organisms to make embryos were already there. They had evolved in the single-celled world, but they weren't doing embryogenesis, Mazur's braces, unquote. Natural selection cannot solve that problem. It cannot look ahead and create an embryological toolkit for some future use. It cannot develop the tools for making multicellular bodies when there are no multicellular bodies. Natural selection is insufficient, so once again evolutionists are appealing to mechanisms of self-assembly and self-organization. Stuart Newman's paper which Mazur says on page 12, quote, served as the centerpiece of the Altenburg Symposium, unquote, claims that all 35 or so animal phyla physically self-organized by the time of the Cambrian explosion, and selection followed later as a stabilizer of the self-organized novelties. From the book on page 321, quoting Massimo Piatelli Palmarini, Look, when Sherman stresses that the sea urchin, which has no eyes, has, inexpressed, the genes for the eyes and for antibodies, genes that are well known and fully active in later species, how can we not agree with him that canonical Dion-Darwinism cannot begin to explain such facts? Unquote. This problem from genetics and the fossil record is scientifically solid and firm, but the evolutionist solution is not. Yet Mazur inverts the proper handling by giving a superficial description of the problem. Few of her readers will understand what is driving evolutionary scientists to such desperate lengths. The evolutionary ideas of self-assembly and self-organization have two faults. First, there is insufficient experimental demonstration. Again, quoting from the book, page 322, quoting Massimo Piatelli Palmarini, Self-organization is, of course, an important component but not much has been discovered beyond generalities. The immense amount of intricate detail that geneticists and developmentalists have been discovering over the years dwarfs general metaphors like autoevolution and even self-organization. Moreover, these evolutionary explanations lack scientific testability or seriously risk that they could potentially be empirically falsified. Nobody seems to know how to test these. On page 291 of the book, quoting Stuart Kaufman, I think self-organization is part of an alternative to natural selection. Let me try to frame it for you. In fact, it's a huge debate. The truth is that we don't know how to think about it. Unquote. 
Due to this twofold scientific failure, these mechanisms can kindly be called hyperbole, or just plain hype, not science. These do not meet the requirements for science that evolutionists endorsed in all their court cases, but this deficiency is not discussed in the book. As we would predict for an evolutionary book of this type, it suggests no need whatever for testability of evolutionary explanations. In fact, it scarcely mentions testability. Meanwhile, evolutionists elsewhere resolutely demand testability from creation theories. This book is another example of the evolutionists' routine double standard. One standard, testability, required of creation theory, and a far lower standard required of evolutionary theory. Here is how evolutionists arrive at what they, quote, know about origins. Number one, they take evolution as an unshakable fact. And two, science provides compelling evidence against many evolutionary explanations. These are taken together as evidence for the remaining evolutionary explanations, no matter how flaky, unsupported, or unscientific. This method of knowing runs deep within the evolutionist mindset. Evolutionists are constitutionally unable to see evidence against evolution even when hitting them in the face. The Altenburg 16 provides an example. There are many examples. There is so-called convergence, which is superabundant in life. For example, evolutionists claim vision arose more than 40 separate times and that a complex eye, like yours, with a lens and a retina, originated at least five separate times as it is found separately in vertebrates, cephalopods like octopus and squid, annelid worms, jellyfish, and a spider. Such origins have not remotely been demonstrated experimentally, and though these designs are complex, their similarity cannot be explained by common descent or by atavism, that is, the masking and later unmasking of genetic traits, or by sideways transposition of traits from one lineage to another, such as bilateral gene transfer or endosymbiosis. Those are merely the three versions of simple inheritance that evolutionists actively employ in their storytelling. But all three of these simple explanations are eliminated by the data. But note, this was necessary to meet the goals predicted by message theory. Evolutionists are left with their least easy, least plausible, quote, explanation of the situation. The bald-faced, unscientific claim for the independent origin of similar biological complexities. In short, these are strong anti-evolutionary evidences. Given the incredible flexibility of evolutionary storytelling, convergences are as anti-evolutionary as they can be. Ironically, the more profound the anti-evolutionary evidence the more the evolutionist sees it as evidence for the incredible power of some evolutionary mechanism. All evolutionists interpret convergence as evidence for the incredible power of natural selection. Evolutionists instinctively recognize convergence as anti-evolutionary evidence because they tend to avoid it in venues where evolution is not assumed as a fact, such as debates with creationists. The evolutionist method is to set aside the anti-evolutionary evidences long enough to conclude evolution is a, quote, fact, and then later reinterpret those as evidence for some evolutionary mechanism. 
Simon Conway Morris gives Convergence a book-length discussion. He documents countless examples of astounding convergence, and, taken together with his assumption of evolution as fact, he is forced to conclude that convergence is inevitable, and extraterrestrial life, if it produces higher life forms, would likely produce bilateral, large-branch humanoids, much like ourselves. Natural selection is that powerful. Convergence is that inevitable. What is the evidence that convergence is inevitable? Answer, that it exists abundantly. No further evidence is needed. To evolutionists, sufficient experimental demonstration is not required of evolution, and neither is scientific testability. Another example. The classical Darwinians sought to identify ancestors and use these as their central predicted evidence for evolution. If they had succeeded, I would be an evolutionist today. In various ways, they created illusions, and their research program took 120 years to collapse. They failed because clear-cut ancestors and lineages are systematically absent. Therefore, starting in the mid-1970s, evolutionists sought to reformulate their theory and their predictions and their so-called evidence so as to have no need for identifying the ancestors. The cladistic methodology then rose to prominence, and it never identifies real ancestors. Likewise, punctuated equilibria theory rose to prominence largely because it attempts to explain away this central failure of Darwinism. Evolutionists began to acknowledge three profound anti-evolutionary patterns in the fossil record. Number one, absence of change non-change or stasis throughout the existence of fossil species. Number two, the systematic existence of large morphological gaps between life forms, i.e. the systematic absence of gradualism, which Stephen Jay Gould famously called the trade secret of paleontology. Number three, systematic absences of clear-cut ancestors and clear-cut lineages. Evolutionists use these anti-evolutionary evidences taken together with the, quote, fact of evolution as evidence for a new theory of evolutionary mechanism. If you locked yourself in a room with little but those things, you would eventually come out with their theory, punctuated equilibria, in all its essential details. Items 1 and 2 were used as evidence for rapid evolution at the origin of new species. But unknown to most people, item 3 gives the theory much of its distinctive character. According to the theory, evolution occurs predominantly at branching events, called speciation, in sudden, rapid bursts, in random, largely non-adaptive directions, thereby scrambling any lingering appearance of clear-cut ancestors and lineage. The theory was specially designed to scramble lineages and make the identification of ancestors indecipherable. Evolutionists embrace this theory despite its lack of experimental demonstration and lack of scientific testability. The theory is now well protected because, ironically, the only way to refute it would be to provide convincing evidence for evolution. As another example, take von Baer's laws of embryology, which remain central to our best description of the patterns of embryo development. 
those patterns happen to be anti-evolutionary evidence, especially the tendency for embryos to soon display their most generalized characters and then continue in sequence to display less generalized characters, and eventually to display their most specialized characters. Put crudely, a given embryo soon displays the characteristics of its phyla, followed by the characteristics of its Linnaean class, then its Linnaean order, then family, and so forth. This embryological sequence, from generalized to specialized, is quite awkward for evolutionists to explain. Can you recall any evolutionist ever trying to explain von Baer's laws? The problem is so difficult, I can find no ready example of evolutionists ever explicitly trying to explain them. Instead, their answer was implicitly given as recapitulation theory. The theory can be derived by locking oneself in a room with little but von Baer's laws, together with the, quote, fact of universal common descent. You would come out of the room with recapitulation theory in all its essential details. But recapitulation theory requires highly peculiar mechanisms for which there exists no serious experimental demonstrations. Nevertheless, evolutionists widely promoted those recapitulation mechanisms as real and foisted it all off on school children, even for many decades after evolutionist researchers privately knew it was false. Though recapitulation was thought finally expunged by Stephen Jay Gould in his 1977 book Ontogeny and Phylogeny, it is still widely held today because evolutionists possess no better answer. The central evidence for recapitulation mechanisms is the anti-evolutionary evidence from embryology taken together with the, quote, fact of evolution. For another example, look at the origin of life. Take the universe of ideas and subtract all that don't take naturalistic origin of life as a fact. Then further subtract all ideas that have been scientifically refuted. The remainders are what textbooks teach about the origin of life regardless of how flaky, undemonstrated, or untestable. Here the textbooks omit the real science. What we really know, scientifically, is the many ways the origin of life didn't happen naturalistically. Creationists now scientifically own the origin of life issue. But to evolutionists, all evidence supports some evolutionary mechanism. It cannot be otherwise. It simply must be so, because evolution is a quote, fact. Lynn Margulis saw that government funding for evolutionary research comes in a disjointed manner from various distinctly separate government agencies and departments rather than from a coherent single entity. So she, together with other evolutionists, wrote a letter to the National Science Foundation urging it to set up a single entity, especially for funding evolution research. And this is from the book, pages 263 to 264, quoting Lynn Margulis, quote, So we talked about ways of putting pressure on the National Science Foundation to set up an evolution section. This would lead to a reduction of redundancy and save money for the funding agencies. Anyway, I deduce that the NSF scientist bureaucrats were conflicted about our letter. The woman, the representative of the NSF, assigned to answer us, wrote to say that there were so many American citizens opposed to evolution that if the NSF put chemistry, geology, etc. into a single evolution division, it would be like sticking out our heads to be chopped off. Such a proposal, no matter its intellectual validity, would surely not fly. 
She said the NSF thought it would strengthen evolution science by avoidance of the word evolution and not by centralizing research activities, unquote. This shows how a centralized government can relabel things and partition a large funding stream in various confusing ways so as to intentionally obscure where taxpayer money is going and intentionally get around the will of the people. Evolutionists use this maneuver, and Mazur reports no objection to it. Evolutionists feel justified in intentionally withholding key information from the public. This is consistent with their belief system that morals are merely products of evolution. Mazur calls attention to the existing censorship against non-Darwinian ideas. She opposes that censorship, and rightly so. Creationists experience far heavier censorship against their ideas, yet her explanations for the censorship are nearly identical to what creationists say. On page 9, quote, The commercial media is both ignorant of and blocks coverage of stories about non-centrality of the gene because its science advertising dollars come from the gene-centered Darwin industry. At the same time, the Darwin industry is also in bed with government, even as political leaders remain clueless about evolution. Thus, the public is unaware that its dollars are being squandered on funding of mediocre, middle-brow science, or that its children are being intellectually starved as a result of outdated texts and unenlightened teachers." Unquote. On page 104, she writes, quote, The mainstream media has failed to cover the non-centrality of the gene story to any extent. This has to do largely with Darwin-based industry advertising, editors not doing their homework and others just trying to hold on to their jobs, unquote. She writes on page 105, quote, The thinking is we can no longer pretend evolution is just about Darwinian natural selection, even if that's what most biologists say it's about, and textbooks repeat it, unquote. On page 8, she writes, quote, The consensus of the evolution pack, i.e. the science blogs, still seems to be that if an idea doesn't fit in with Darwinism and neo-Darwinism, keep it out, unquote. She quotes Stuart Newman on page 104, quote, Unless the discourse around evolution is opened up to scientific perspectives beyond Darwinism, the education of generations to come is at risk of being sacrificed for the benefit of a dying theory, unquote. And Stuart Newman is quoted on page 131, quote, One reason that so little progress has been made in this area is that perfectly valid scientific concepts that employ non-adaptive evolutionary mechanisms are rarely considered because of the hegemony of the neo-Darwin framework, unquote. Lynn Margulis reveals how the established worldview, evolution, enforces unity within its ranks by saying, quote, on page 275, people are always more loyal to their tribal group than to any abstract notion of, quote, truth, unquote. Scientists especially. If not, they are unemployable. It is professional suicide to continually contradict one's teachers or social leaders, unquote. Disinterest by the mainstream media is one thing, but Mazur is especially alarmed with the self-censorship by evolutionary leaders themselves. Why are they keeping the American public in the dark? She asks, why have the two major evolution conferences of the year, quote, been hosted outside the United States, unquote? Why in foreign languages? She is alarmed, quote, the English-speaking world may not be getting the message, unquote, page 217. 
Why are evolutionary leaders not getting the message out? She repeatedly returns to this puzzle. From her book on page 101, she wrote, I asked Eugenie Scott from the National Center for Science Education, the NCSE, what she thought about self-organization and why self-organization was not represented in the books NCSE was promoting. She responded that people confuse self-organization with intelligent design, and that is why NCSE has not been supportive, unquote. More precisely, the NCSE, quote, does not recommend textbooks for schools if those texts include a discussion of self-organization, unquote, found on page 254 of her book. Eugenie Scott's statement is nonsense. No matter what the new evolutionary theories may be, no one will confuse those with intelligent design. She's trying to blame her opponents for something within the evolutionist camp. I'll explain her mischief later. Mazur then asks Stuart Newman, quote, To what do you attribute the reluctance to distribute literature about self-organization by organizations like the National Center for Science Education? Unquote. That's found on page 131. He gets a little closer to the truth. He says, quote, I think there is a challenge that self-organization and plasticity in general presents to Darwinian theory. To my mind, self-organization does represent a challenge to the Darwinian, i.e. the modern synthesis, and the perceived understanding of evolutionary theory. People are concerned that if they open up the door to non-Darwinian mechanisms, then they're going to allow creationists to slip through the door as well. Unquote. Evolutionists are again blaming creationists as a factor that keeps evolutionists silent. Quoting Massimo Piatelli Palmarini on page 317, quote, I think that abandoning Darwinism, or explicitly relegating it where it belongs in the refinement and tuning of existing forms, sounds anti-scientific. They, the many contributors to non-Darwinian evolutionary theories, fear that the tenets of intelligent design and the creationists, people I hate as much as they do, will rejoice and quote them as being on their side. They really fear that, so they are prudent, some in good faith, some for calculated fear of being cast out of the scientific community. Unquote. Mazur writes, page 252, quote, This is a big debate, which the media is not covering. It's reached a crescendo, and a lot of people are saying there's a sea change happening, unquote. Meanwhile, at nearly the same time, the National Academy of Sciences published its book, Science, Evolution, and Creationism, as a denunciation of intelligent design and a defense of teaching only evolution in the public schools. In other words, the NAS book omitted the crescendo of controversy and painted a false picture of unity about evolutionary theory and origins. Mazur pans it as, quote, a very general book, unquote, and Riley asks Niles Eldridge about its, quote, simplicity. He responds, page 329, quote, No. I mean, look, when you're fighting school boards who want to adopt intelligent design, you've got to write in very basic terms. It is a political problem. And there's always a problem, as you know, in communicating science to the public and being clear about it, unquote. Eldridge adopts the usual justification when dealing with the public, simplification is necessary so long as the simplification favors evolution. If the simplification were to disfavor evolution, 
evolutionists would soon discover their tongues and loudly denounce it. Note, it would be helpful if evolutionists dealt with origins in the same way they wanted their opponents to deal with it. Habitual simplification in one's own favor can be a form of dishonesty. Mazur objects that the NAS book didn't include any, quote, additional ways, unquote, to consider, such as self-assembly and self-organization, so Eldridge answers, page 329 and 330, quote, no, because it's all regarded as speculative and on the forefront and stuff. What they're trying to do, in the NAS book, is say where we are now, where we're comfortable, where we can actually say that this is the way people really do think for the most part, unquote. Eldridge is comfortable omitting the new evolutionary explanations because those are, quote, speculative, unquote. But the problems aren't speculative. They're rock-solid scientifically, and Eldridge and Mazur did not object to omitting those from the NAS book. The self-censorship now can be explained. The new evolutionary mechanisms of self-assembly and self-organization arise from the evolutionists' attempts to answer overwhelming problems that are scientifically rock-hard and straightforward to describe. But the evolutionary, quote, answers are flaky, fluff, undemonstrated, and untestable, not scientific. That explains why evolutionists prefer venues where evolution is taken as fact, say, at their by-invitation-only conferences. That explains why evolutionists avoid self-organization for the general public, such as the NAS book. That explains why Eugenie Scott and the NCSE actively oppose including self-organization in school textbooks. The NCSE is America's leading anti-creation organization, and they don't want ugly questions rising such as, what's the evidence for self-organization? Because the answer would be, the evidence for self-organization is the overwhelming problems faced by evolutionary theory taken together with the fact of evolution. This won't look pretty in classrooms. Lima de Faria on page 91 says, quote, Silence is the strongest weapon. The disregard for science's ethical principles is widespread, unquote. Suzanne Mazur observes self-censorship in America, and she searches sincerely for its causes. But the dark truth is that she has censored her own book. Because she's an evolutionist, she withheld from her readers a robust discussion of the many serious problems that are forcing evolutionists to such desperate solutions as self-assembly and self-organization. I would welcome a sequel from her documenting these in the same professional, journalistic, that is unbiased, fashion with which she's handled the majority of the material.